The website Fast Times posed a question I want to start with today. What's the greatest logo of all time? They said the average person gets bombarded with upwards of 5,000 brand messages every day. Every brand wants some expression that will not only be simple and memorable, but tap into a deep level of desire. I'll show you a few that they said are great to test how effective they are. If you know the brand name, you can just say it out loud. Here's the first one. Uh, this is for Nike. This is called the swoosh. Nike was the Greek goddess of victory. And this image is supposed to look like one of her wings. It was actually developed by a graphic design student named Carolyn Davidson. She was literally working for $2 an hour. She got paid 35 bucks to create the swoosh. Phil Knight said of it, I don't love it, but it'll grow on me. Uh-huh. Uh, this is Amazon. Often logos have a hidden meaning. If you look carefully at where the yellow line starts and ends, it's showing you can use Amazon to buy everything from A to Z. Plus, the yellow line is a smile to represent how happy people are who shop on Amazon. And I think how happy the people are who own Amazon. And then there's FedEx. FedEx is when it's got to get there fast. And what I had never noticed before is the arrow in between the E and the X that represents speed, movement, accuracy. And there's Baskin Robbins. I'm probably the only one that had never noticed. They have 30 wonderful flavors, and the BR is the 31, just to remind you. This next one doesn't even have a name attached to it. Starbucks. What would happen if Starbucks were to close tomorrow and no coffee were available? The country would collapse. And then there's Google. The logo for Google is the word Google. Not sure why this one made the list. Uh, here, the golden arches. Business Insider says this is the most recognizable logo in the world. It means satisfaction. You get food. You get it fast. You get it cheap. It tastes good. If you have a van, the kids can get a whole meal just rummaging in the cracks between the seats to find french fries that you got the last time you were there. Smart people stay up late dreaming about these things. A good logo isn't just memorable, it's compelling. It makes you say, I gotta have that. I gotta be a part of that. What's the greatest one? And that brings us to a, a real critical observation. For 2,000 years now, the primary image that has been associated with Jesus and the movement he started has been, oddly enough, two pieces of wood that were fastened together to execute slaves and criminals. And for people who follow Jesus, that's the corporate logo. That's our brand. Now, this is terribly strange. Other religions have much more inviting symbols, as you may know. The Star of David, or a crescent moon, or a lotus flower, images of light, nature, beauty. If you were designing a symbol to attract men and women all around the world to be part of a movement, no marketing expert would recommend a means of execution. It has become so familiar in our day through jewelry and art and so that we have largely been desensitized to it and we forget its shocking meaning. How likely is it, after all, that PG&E would choose as its logo an electric chair with the slogan, the power is on? How likely is it that jewelry makers will sell necklaces with little guillotines on them? 
How strange that more graves should be marked by crosses than anything else. It's unthinkable that they would be marked by other causes of death, like gallows or knives or guns, unimaginable. But we don't even think about the cross. And you should know this did not happen by accident. Jesus was the master of images, as of all else. He deliberately chose this one, the cross, and it became, as he knew it would, the most famous and powerful image in history, precisely as he intended. And the obvious question is, why? Why a cross? Well, that's what I want to look at in this message. We have begun as a church to study this remarkable book in the New Testament called 1 Corinthians. Corinth was a lot like the Bay Area. We talked about this last week. Go on and check out that message if you haven't heard it yet. Corinth was rebuilt by Rome, so it had a startup culture. It was generating enormous wealth. It was culturally and ethnically and religiously very diverse. It was extremely competitive. The people that lived there were obsessed with status. Corinth was killing it. And if you think a cross would be a strange logo to us, it would be exponentially stranger to them. In fact, this moves us to a part of what is utterly unique about the Christian faith. An author, Fleming Rutledge, writes this. The world's religions have certain traits in common, but until the gospel of Jesus Christ burst upon the Mediterranean world, no one in the history of human imagination had conceived of such a thing as the worship of a crucified man. It was Jesus who conceived of such a thing. It was Jesus who used the cross to express the deep lostness, brokenness, death of humanity, and the measureless suffering love of God. And this paradoxical pathway to a life of victory and satisfaction and abundance that Amazon and Nike and Starbucks and McDonald's only give us tiny little tastes of. And so now Paul has been haunted by, captivated by the cross of Jesus. Here's part of why we're talking about this. Last year, we devoted ourselves to studying Jesus' great message, the Sermon on the Mount. This year, we're studying Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. And what runs all through Paul's letter is this image of the cross, this message of the cross. Now, the cross is about much more than just how to get a ticket to heaven. For Paul, it is as though everything that Jesus taught about the reality of the kingdom of God, that those who become servants are actually the greatest, that the first are last, that it is more blessed to give than to receive, that those who seek their life will lose them, but those who die to themselves will receive their life. It's like everything Jesus ever did or taught somehow, somehow got fully expressed, fully embodied on the cross. It is as though somehow that cross embodied evil, guilt, and death the way that Jesus embodied goodness, love, and life. And Jesus turned the cross from a weapon intended to kill God to a weapon that God would use through Jesus to kill death by dying himself. I was thinking about it this way. My physics-studying son tells me that in the beginning, there was this tiny point called a singularity. And in the Big Bang, the entire universe came out of it. Hard to conceive. It is like what Paul saw 
was that somehow the entire expression of the kingdom of God, God's infinite capacity to love and to forgive and to create, was contained in this one tiny, insignificant, cruel little cross. And in the resurrection, the kingdom exploded out of it and is still expanding. It's like the crucifixion and the resurrection are God's big spiritual bang. And they are available now for your life. So we will study this book and in particular study the cross and seek to be a people of the cross in this strange, diverse, wonderful, wealthy, weird, divided, innovated, isolated, often spiritually impoverished Corinth called the Bay Area where God has planted us. Paul said, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The message of the cross by the way, the word translated message is the Greek word logos. It's where our word logo comes from. The logo of the cross, the message of the cross is the power of God. Now this would sound just utterly bizarre to Corinth. Corinth prided itself on its intellectual and cultural life. It was a Roman colony. It had overtaken Athens as the intellectual leader of its area. It had found favor with Caesar. It had Greek wisdom and culture. It had Roman power and wealth. It had sexual freedom and financial opportunity. Corinth is where you came if you wanted to get ahead. Crucifixion would not have struck the people of Corinth as a good career booster. You know, the ancient world knew a lot about execution. They practiced it quite often. They knew how to execute people swiftly, just the stroke of a sword to behead them. They knew how to execute people privately. Socrates was condemned to die and took hemlock with a small circle of friends. Crucifixion was much more of a hassle for a government. It required a team of four soldiers. There had to be a centurion present to oversee it. The cross itself had to be constructed. Crucifixion was time-consuming and very costly, and governments always want to keep expenses down. So why did they do it? Well, two reasons. One is, crucifixion maximized the pain inflicted on the crucified one. It took hours or even days to die. But the main reason was that crucifixion maximized the public humiliation of the person being crucified. It was a public spectacle. The victim would be stripped naked. This happened to Jesus. This was an essential part of crucifixion, to have no power over your body, to be exposed and shamed and mocked. And then there would be a procession to the place of crucifixion, kind of like a parade. And somebody would shout out to the crowds the nature of the crime, and they would carry a board on which that crime was written. They would take the longest route through the most crowded streets to attract maximum attention. A Roman writer named Seneca, who lived around Paul's time, wrote that any self-respecting man would commit suicide before ever allowing himself to be crucified. Rome only used crucifixion for slaves. It was actually called the slave's punishment or for rebels who conspired against the government. Rome was trying to control foreign countries like Israel that hated them. And this was their way of discouraging rebellion. So, 
If you were thinking about being the Messiah, your number one rule would be don't get crucified. Ixne on the oscre. Conventional wisdom, the kind they admired in Corinth, would say this is a good rule for leaders in general. Ron Heifetz from Harvard has one of my favorite definitions of leadership. He says, leadership is the art of disappointing people at a rate they can stand. Jesus disappointed people at a rate they could not stand. And they crucified him. And yet Paul did not minimize Jesus' public failure. In fact, he highlighted it. He wrote, Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles. Now, you might think about this as three alternative brands, three logos, if you like. And you can think about which one you would prefer for your own life, for your own personal brand, because we live in a world where everybody's got to have their own brand. Paul says that the people of Israel, Jewish people, demanded signs. And we would often see this in the Gospels. People would say to Jesus things like this. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want a sign from you. And the idea here is they're looking for works of great power, miracles that would indicate this leader has enough strength and charisma to overthrow Rome. If we were to attach a logo to this brand, it might be a picture of The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, former wrestler, football player, turned fabulously wealthy movie star who is so strong he is called The Rock. You want a Messiah, you want The Rock. Interestingly, we actually have a campus pastor at one of our sites who used to be a heavyweight wrestling champ and then a Stanford football player turned pastor whose body and appearance is remarkably like The Rock's. Scott Palmbush at Saratoga. Way to go, Saratoga. And this logo would say, the way to the good and flourishing life is more power, more strength, more charisma, the ability to dominate, demanding signs of power. I get that. I want that. But Paul says that's not Jesus' brand. And then the second brand, he says, the Greeks look for wisdom. Now, if we're going to choose a logo for this one, it might be. It's a picture of Albert Einstein, brilliant, brilliant guy. Interestingly, we also have a, a pastor whose body looks remarkably like Albert Einstein's. And I won't tell you which one it is, but it is why I never wear short sleeve shirts. Now, uh, you got to put the word wisdom in scare quotes here. Because in Corinth, wisdom was all about how to pursue honor and wealth and status. Mastering the art of rhetoric, we'll talk more about this next week, fascinating story, was really all about self-promotion. And such public order sages were the celebrities of their day, a lot like reality TV stars are in our day. So when Paul says he did not preach with wisdom or eloquence, this is often misunderstood, it doesn't mean that he used poor logic or bad grammar, very much to the contrary. It meant he deliberately identified with people of low status and lived among the Corinthians as a servant. He defied conventional wisdom of making your life about getting ahead. To try to secure the good life by demanding signs that guarantee power, influence, control, domination, strength, I get that brand. To try to secure the good life by being the smartest guy in the room and figuring out how to get ahead of everybody else, I get that brand. And then there is the Jesus brand. Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. 
And I want to talk about how strange that one phrase is. Uh, we had our volunteer kickoff event recently at all of our campuses. It was great. Thank God. Thank all of you who are serving. At the Menlo Park campus, Eugene Lee talked about oxymorons, and oxymoron is two words that actually contradict each other, like jumbo shrimp, or hell's angels, or small crowd, or virtual reality, or a civil war, or airline food, or country music. And the oxymoron in this particular passage is Christ crucified. Now, we're likely to just Skim right past that. Christ was not a name. It was a title. Jesus was his name. Christ was a title that meant anointed one or Messiah. Crucifixion meant by definition that you were not the Messiah, that Rome had defeated you. So you could have a Messiah or you could have a crucifixion. You could not have both. And yet Paul is rubbing the Corinthians' noses in it. It would be one thing to preach Christ, anointed leader, wise teacher, noble character. I get that. But no, Paul doesn't say we preach Christ. He says we preach Christ crucified, failed, crushed, shamed, humiliated, executed. A few verses later, he gets after the same things. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, again in scare quotes, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Do you understand how utterly upside down and disorienting this is to everybody in Corinth? The cross meant Jesus had been tried and found wanting. He could not give enough signs of his power to rally his own people to overthrow their oppressors. He could not plead his case with sufficient wisdom and eloquence to persuade Roman justice. He tried, he failed, he lost, he died. In a world where honor was proof of merit, we understand that world, where shame and failure was proof of worthlessness. Jesus experienced the deepest, most public, most dehumanizing shame known to the ancient world. And this is what Paul leads with, which means one of two things. Either Jesus was not as great as they thought, or greatness is going to have to be redefined. Human flourishing, the purpose of life, is going to have to be redefined. Corinth is going to have to be redefined. The Bay Area is going to have to be redefined. Either Jesus was not as great as they thought, or the purpose of life, and the nature of God, and the foundation of hope, and who counts and who doesn't, and the power of suffering love to overcome hatred, and the possibility of having our evil and sins forgiven by God, have all been turned so radically upside down by a crucified carpenter, for crying out loud, that Rome and Caesar and Corinth itself look like bit players in comparison. And what Paul is claiming against all odds is that in thousands of years, when the Roman Empire has crumbled, this man, Jesus, would still be expanding by the great big bang, his kingdom. And oh, by the way, that is exactly what has happened. And that is the power of the cross. See, the power of the cross turns out to be the power of God, fully expressed in Jesus Christ and most fully in Jesus on a cross. We preach Christ and him crucified. And it then becomes the power of the resurrection 
We all love that. But you can't have a resurrection if you don't have a crucifixion first. You can't skip the crucifixion part. Jesus couldn't. But gang, here's where this gets real personal. We can't. And this now is the noble, glorious, painful, scary path that we are called to. The adventure we begin together this week. Often people misunderstand this about Christianity. Often people think Jesus died on a cross so that I don't have to. Not Paul. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But thank God, Christ lives in me. See, this is the way to human flourishing that everybody's so passionate to find out about. But it's not the way of Corinth. More status, more money, more power. It is the way of the cross. That is, full surrender to God. At the cross, I lay down my life. I confess my sins. And I receive his life and his forgiveness. And if you've never done that before, I invite you to do that this weekend. At the cross, I give God my life, my money, my time, my ego, my habits. I give him my old self, my old life, and I receive this new one through Jesus. And Jesus, the master of images, told us this is the way. He said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. See, Jesus chose the way of the cross, and he named the cross as his image before he ever died on one. So this weekend, we have little crosses at all of our sites. And I want to invite you, anybody who wants to, to grab one of these on your way out and to take it with you into your week and to ask God to allow you to live in the way of the cross, in the power of the cross that is humble, God-powered love. Take it to your office or your school or where you volunteer and work under the cross this week. Make it your goal this week not to promote yourself, but to do your work diligently with his help, cheerfully, constantly asking Jesus to partner with you, to guide you, to give you creativity and perseverance, and looking to see who around you you might encourage. When you're at a meeting this week, pray that God would let some other person say something really smart. Pull for your biggest rival to shine the brightest. That hurts, I know, I feel that, but it's good. If you're at school, take tests under the cross. Now, this will change the way you take a test. No cheating, no comparing with anybody else, no worrying. Do your best, offer it to God, and then let it go. Nail that test to the cross. When you get in your car, drive in the way of the cross. It'll change the way you drive. Um, some time ago, a couple years ago, I was in an intersection, and a guy in another car got really mad at me about who was going next. And he literally got out of his car and knocked on the window of my car. And he was a great big guy. That was kind of a frightening moment. But I looked and there was a cross hanging down from the rearview mirror of his car. And I said, hey, you've got a cross. I'm a pastor. We're like spiritual brothers. And he didn't kill me. And I was so grateful for that little cross. 
This week, when you look on your phone or you turn on your computer, go online under the cross. Am I looking at sites Jesus would look at? Am I not looking at sites Jesus would not look at? Am I posting and tweeting words the way that Jesus would be tweeting if Jesus were me? This week, take the cross into your home and ask God to help you to be a servant to your roommate or your siblings or your spouse or your children. Let the cross remind you that God has not put you in control over them, even though you know their lives would go so much better if they would just let you run them, don't you? Instead, under the cross this week, help them, listen, care, serve, notice, encourage, speak truth, give. This week, you take the cross with you into our Corinth, because I'll tell you a little secret. There is a wisdom that you cannot Google. There is a treasure that you cannot get on Amazon. There is a hunger that you will never satisfy at the Golden Arches. FedEx might save you a little time, but not eternity. But through this, through the cross of Jesus, the power of God, we are more than conquerors. And the riches of God, though he was rich, yet he became poor so that you might be made rich through him. And the wisdom of God, all the treasures of the wisdom of God are found in Christ. And eternal life can be yours. So here's the challenge. And I want to use the words of a friend of mine by the name of Sam. Sam is one of those larger-than-life characters. We all have a few folks like that in our lives. He has done really well by Corinthian standards. Uh, he is always laughing and teasing, just loves people, an enormous extrovert. He always gives me a hard time about having white hair and looking really old. And he always calls my wife Nancy Babe. He's the only one that does that. And he's so charming that he gets away with it. And I would be jealous, except he's 20 years older than me. And Sam, if you're listening to this online, he looks 40 years older than me. Uh, we were with our friend Max uh, a couple years ago. Max was a mentor to both of us. And uh, Max was dying, and it would, was the last time that we would ever be with him. And Sam said a phrase I will never forget as long as I live. Sam said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to double down on the cross. We're going to bet everything we have on this executed carpenter who is the hope of the world. Because no matter how well you do in Corinth, the day is going to come when Corinth will let you down. Corinth will not save you. Corinth will not, Corinth has no power over death. This does. Some people look for signs. Power, domination, not us. Some people look for wisdom, be the smartest guy in the room. Not us. We're going to read this book. We're going to follow Christ crucified who was killing it. We're going to double down on the cross.